Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are studying God's Word together, thinking through it, in fact. And I'm glad that you are here. You know, today we're uh, we're continuing our study of Isaiah, and I'm thankful for this passage that we're going to look at because I think it is so instructive for us Christians right now where we are in this time and space. I'm going to try to show you that as we go. Before we jump into it, I want to just encourage you wherever you are, take a deep breath. If you have a cup of coffee, take a sip of your coffee and remember Jesus Christ is on his throne. The Lord, the Son of God, the once dead, now risen Jesus Christ is on the throne of the universe. This world is not spinning out of control. We don't need to be afraid. So here's my opening exhortation to you that I think we're going to see in the text, believe it or not. <laughs> Turn off the news. If your regular habit is to spend a lot of time on Twitter, Facebook, cable, TV, if you're of a former generation, if you, if you consume a lot of news and media, turn it off. It has an agenda on all sides, right and left. It has an agenda to work you up and scare you. Turn it off. Rejoice because the Lord Jesus made this day and he's the king. And don't ever forget that. So as we look at Isaiah chapter 7, you may be thinking, how in the world does that uh, tie into this? Well, let me show you. We covered the background of this yesterday, looking at Kings and Chronicles and some of these characters, and I will uh, I'll bring you up to speed as we need to. But here's how chapter 7 of Isaiah begins. Good morning, Keith. Good morning, Paul and the rest of you. It says, now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the, king, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. All right, so uh, let me pull the map up for you again, for those of you watching on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter here. Uh, so you see the northern kingdom there. That's the Israel and the green. Remember, the, the, the nation of Israel is now two nations, two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is Israel. Southern kingdom is Judah. And they have different kings, different capital cities, different rulers. Uh, they've been divided. And this is because of, because of God's judgment on them, because of Solomon's sin and leading the people into idolatry and all that. And so now you've got Israel up there in the north, and you've got, see up in the upper right hand, Aram. These two nations are joining forces against the red group, against Judah, uh, against the, uh, the southern kingdom there. All right, so that's what's happening. You've got uh, the son of Ramalia is the king of Israel. That's well, we'll get to his name in a little bit. you got Aram. They're combining, and they are coming against Judah. So they came against Judah, and they wanted to subdue Jerusalem, but they couldn't conquer. They couldn't overcome. 
And this, if you remember from yesterday, this battle's been going on for a while. They'd come and lay siege, and then they'd be thwarted and, and back and forth and back and forth. Verse 2. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, quote, The Aramaeans have camped in Ephraim. His heart, that is the house of David, and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. So this is Ahaz, and he gets word that the Aramaeans are swarming, they're joining, they're settling in with uh, Ephraim, with the northern kingdom, and it causes his heart to shake like the, the trees when a huge wind comes through. And the people, they follow the leader, right? When Ahaz is terrified at this news, all the people become terrified. If you are Ephraim, if you're if you're the northern kingdom, if you're the Aramites, if you, if you're the or Aramans, if you're the, the the these two nations coming against Jerusalem, this is exactly what you want to happen, isn't it? You want your opponent terrified. This is true in sports. This is true in war. This is true in games, <laughs> just board games and things. If you can get your opponent in a posture of fear, then you've won half the battle, maybe more than half the battle. If you're a boxer, right? if you can create terror in the hearts of your opponent before you ever get in the ring, you're going to win. That's what... That's the psychological, the psyop kind of thing going on, right? Get them afraid. Ahaz is scared out of his boots. And the people are scared out of their boots. Folks, this is happening to us today. Now, we've talked about this. I've done series on this. We incorporate it wherever it's appropriate in our studies here. The left has an agenda. And I don't mean this purely Democrats versus Republicans, because frankly, I'm not sure how many Republicans here in the U.S. Uh, are true conservatives. I'm not sure how many really care about the things they claim to care about. Uh, but there is a force, and, I, and I'm, what I'm calling the left includes this worldview that has been pressing in against uh, the Christian worldview and the traditional conservative worldview for decades and decades, going back to you know post World War II, maybe even before World War II. This is this has been building, uh, and and uh, this is not a conspiracy in the conspiracy theorist kind of way. I mean, all this is documented, is articulated. You can read Herbert Macuza online for free. You can read the Frankfurt School. Uh, there's an agenda, and they've been slowly working toward it to disrupt, to destroy Western civilization. That's what the, what you know, Marxism, cultural Marxism, that they're very upfront with what they're trying to do, but we're just naive to it. And so many politicians on both sides of the aisle today are either on that side, or they're, they're just naive and ignorant to it, it seems to me, based on uh, what they do versus what they say. Oh, the rhetoric comes across, but what they do is, is really nothing helpful. What is, what is it that every, 
uh, everybody online wants to do. They want to get you back to watch their stuff, right? Whether it's Tucker Carlson, Fox News, CNN, Breitbart, uh, MSNBC, all of them, they want you back. How do they get you back? They create fear. You got to go back and, and see what they're going to say next because you're afraid. And there are other allurements as well, but that's a big one. You know, the repeated command in scripture, the one that's repeated more than anything else in all of scripture, of all the commands of God, the most frequently repeated command is not love, even though that's the first and greatest command, right? Love the Lord and then love your neighbor. But the most frequent command is some form of fear not. Don't be afraid. Take courage. Something along those lines. Why? Because we are a fearful people. And we need to be reminded over and over again, don't be afraid. Well, who wants you scared? Yeah, Keith Keith nailed it. Very good. Who wants you afraid? The enemy wants you afraid. Satan wants us afraid. And all those that he has is working in to crush God's people, they want us afraid. We make foolish decisions when we are afraid. We are paralyzed and don't take any action at all when we're afraid. And most importantly, we don't trust the Lord when we are afraid. Ahaz here has a chance to trust the Lord. But he's so afraid, and that combined with his wicked, corrupt heart, uh, causes him to turn anywhere but to the Lord for help. So the Aramans, the northern two kingdoms are coming together against Ahaz. He's shaking. He's quaking. The people are shaking. They're quaking. They are afraid. They need help desperately. And the Lord offers help. Verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, say to Ahaz, take care and be calm and have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramalia. I love this. There's so much here. So first of all, God tells Ahaz, or tells Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz. But he says, take your son with you. The son's name is Shir Jashub. Now, Isaiah is a huge book, right? 66 chapters. It's very long. Uh, some have speculated that it's going to take me 10 years to get through this series. <laughs> that uh, those some who have speculated that are, are my wife uh, as one of them. <laughs> do you think in this massive book, do you think any words are thrown in unnecessarily? Yeah, of course not, right? This is, the Holy Spirit's not wasting words here. Why does God tell Isaiah to take his son with him to meet Ahaz? Well, his son's name 
is Sheer Jashub. Okay, so just think of the setting. Isaiah walks out. So Ahaz is at this uh, this upper pool, this conduit, probably uh, there as as the king ought to be, trying to figure out with the enemies moving in and laying siege here. How am I going to get water to my people? And Ahaz's son Hezekiah, uh, if, if you read about his his works, he he was a very uh, he was like uh, his great grandfather Uzziah, very skilled at infrastructure and administration and construction and 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 running a city kind of thing. And so he figured out he built an underground tunnel to get water into the city, which being underground, that's going to be harder for enemies to get at. But that hadn't happened yet, and so Ahaz is trying to figure out okay this this water that feeds into this pool that sometimes it's released so that they can go do their laundry. Uh, is there a way to get that water supply sent to the inner city so that uh, our enemies can't shut off our water supply? That's probably what he's doing here. And Isaiah is sent out to meet him. So imagine Isaiah walking up. There's the king surveying the the scene there to try to figure out water. And he brings his son and somewhere along the line, you would expect either Isaiah is going to introduce the king, hey, this is my son here, uh, to the king, or he's going to ask him something about it. But there's, there's, a, there's a reason why God tells Isaiah to take his son and why Isaiah has named him a certain thing. His name is Shir Jashub, which in the Hebrew means a remnant will return. Those of you with children, how did you pick the names of your children? We typically pick names we like in our day. Maybe there's some significance. Maybe there's a uh, an, an ancestor, you know, someone, a father, uncle, close friend, somebody that we want to honor with, and we name our kids after some of those people. Uh, for our three children, we named them things that uh, had significance, meaning my oldest daughter is Sophia. That's the Greek word for wisdom. Uh, Abigail means beloved of the father. Uh, Gabriel was the messenger of God, right? The angel. And so we picked those names. Uh, we liked them, but also because they had some biblical significance. If you're Isaiah, why would you name your son a remnant shall return? Well, think about this. Uh, this is before all this that we're seeing here takes place. Isaiah saw these visions of God's judgment on Israel. And he is so convinced that God is going to keep his promises of grace that in the midst of all the scenes, all the visions that he observes of God's destruction of Jerusalem and Judah and God's people, he knows God is going to preserve a remnant. And he's so convinced of it, he names his son a remnant shall return. I love that. Isaiah is a man of faith. He believes the Lord. He takes him at his word. God is a gracious God and a in the midst of also being a just and holy and wrathful God. He's a, he's a gracious God, and he said he's going to preserve a remnant. Isaiah believes it. He names his son. A remnant will return. So that's Isaiah's perspective. But now, imagine Isaiah goes up and meets Ahaz. Ahaz, what are you doing? Oh, I'm surveying the land here, trying to figure out how to protect our people uh, from starvation and, and dying of thirst as, uh, as these kings have come up against us. And Isaiah says, here, here, Ahaz, I want you to meet my son, a remnant shall return. If you're Ahaz, 
and you could see how this be be portrayed in a movie. It'd be a great movie, wouldn't it? This very intense scene. If you're Ahaz and you hear that, what are you thinking? Isaiah is a prophet of the Lord, and he just introduced me to his son named A Remnant Shall Return. If you're King Ahaz, you could take that one of two ways, couldn't you? There's some implied hope. This is not going to be the end. Here, this messenger of God brought his son, speaking about a remnant. We're not going to be entirely defeated. Or you could look at it the other way, couldn't you? Only a remnant will return. (laughs) Interesting. But what we can be sure of is, this is not an accident that God sends Isaiah with his son named a remnant shall return. Well, the instruction given here to Ahaz is take care and be calm. And the Hebrew, uh, this calm is, is even a little more toward don't do anything. Don't take matters into your own hands. Relax, rest, Ahaz, rest. Have no fear. Don't be faint-hearted. And notice how God describes these two nations, Aram and Israel, who are on the doorstep here. They're two stubs of smoldering firebrands. Oh, they're angry. They are fiercely angry at you. But they're little wicks that are about to be snuffed out. Don't worry about them, Ahaz. Now, back in verse 2 here. It was reported to the house of David. That is not a common phrase to describe the kings. Believe it or not, this phrase, this actual articulation of it is not as common as you might think. Why does Isaiah refer to Ahaz here as the house of David? What do you think of when you think of David? Did David ever encounter fearful situations? Of course. Repeatedly. And what was his response? Remember, he's just a shepherd boy. He's sent to take lunch to his older brothers who are preparing for battle with the Philistines. And he walks up and sees this giant, this literal giant, this massive man out taunting the sons of Israel. And David is appalled that no one is rising up to take him on. And remember, they have an arrangement that Goliath says, send out your best warrior. And if you defeat, if he defeats me, then our people will become your slaves. And if you, if we defeat you, then you become our slaves. So we can save all the bloodshed, all the war, just send out your one fighter and let's settle this with uh, the, the, the champion of each and, and see who wins. And David is appalled that none of the Jews will go out and take on this uncircumcised Philistine, as he calls him. So David marches out there with a sling, with stones, to take on this beast of a man. And you know the story. He takes him out. David, this little scrawny shepherd boy, takes out this giant. Why? Because he says, the Lord is with me. Me and the Lord, we're a majority, right? Have I got the Lord on my side? Why are we afraid? King Saul tried to kill David over and over and over again. And David trusted the Lord. 
Every time he encountered a strong army, he went to the Lord and said, the Lord will give us victory. And he did. That's the house of David. That's the legacy of David. No enemy is a match for the people of God. So it's reported to the house of David that these enemies are coming down and God shows up and says, don't be afraid of them. How should the house of David respond to this? All right, Lord, I trust you. All right, I'll sit here and wait on you. And you'll give deliverance because that's what God does to the house of David. Well, even if you don't know the story, you can probably tell by the way I'm relaying it that that's not what's going to happen. God continues, because Aram with Ephraim, the son of Ramalia, has planned evil against you. Don't be afraid because they've planned evil against you. And here's what they are saying. Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabil as, as king in the midst of it. So you see what they want to do. They want to replace the house of David with this other king. They want to take Ahaz out, put up their own ruler, someone they trust, someone that's in uh, league with them, probably so that Judah would join Aram and Israel against Assyria. So uh, there's some, as you, as you read through the stories of, of Kings and Chronicles, that it, it might be that they wanted Judah to join forces with them against Assyria, and Ahaz wouldn't do it. Uh, and so now they're saying, well, let's just go take it by force. If we take over Judah, take Ahaz out, replace him with our own king, then the three of us nations can go up and defend ourselves against Assyria. That's probably what's going on here. And what would that mean for the... Uh, uh, for the house of David, then that means there's no more king on David's throne. Um, and that's that's the end, right? Uh, Janice says here, David remembered that the Lord saved him from the bear and the lion and knew he'd kill the Philistine. Exactly. Uh, over and over again throughout David's life, he had seen God's empowering his strength of David over all kinds of enemies. Ahaz is not cut from the same cloth at all. God says, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. See what the Lord is doing here? He is giving Ahaz the chance to trust him like his father, David. I've got this Ahaz. They're not going to take you out. They're not going to put their king on the throne. I've got this. Now, verses 8 and 9 at first are very difficult. It's kind of a riddle almost. But I want to see if we can figure it out. Why will it not come to pass? Here's what verses 8 and 9 say. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now, there's a parenthetical statement here. Let's, let's skip that for now. The head of Aram is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, verse 9, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, 
and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Now that's kind of confusing, isn't it? Let me read it again. The head of Aram is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezin. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. All right, now I'm curious. Does anybody have a hint? Uh, you won't have the time in the chat to write out the whole thing, but anybody have a hint of what point is being made with this little riddle here? What is this going to communicate to Ahaz? Why? Notice verse 8, and, and I, I'm well, I welcome your comments here before I uh, tell you what I think. Notice that verse 8 begins with four. Four. The Lord says, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Uh, is uh, Israel or Ephraim uh, and Aram, they are not going to take down the walls of Jerusalem. They are not going to put their king on the throne. It will not happen for the head of Aram is Damascus. The head of Damascus is resin. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. Anybody catch anything about what's going on? This is difficult. I would be very impressed and shocked. This takes some time to reflect and ponder. Our time is getting away from us, so I'm going to... Uh, I'm just going to try to help you see it. So let me go back to the uh, the map here. And no, I should I should set this up where you can see it side by side. Okay, so up in the upper right-hand corner, and again, for those of you listening via podcast, I'll try to go as slow as I can to help you kind of see this. So verse 8 says, the head of Aram is Damascus. Right, so I've got up on the map there. Aram is, is the nation, and Damascus is is the capital city. Okay, so the, the head of Aram is the capital city, Damascus, right? It'd be like the head of the U.S. is D.C., Washington, D.C., something like that. So the head of Aram is Damascus. And then he says the head of Damascus is Rezin. So he goes from the nation Aram to the capital city, Damascus, then to the king, Rezin. So you've got nation Capital city, king. Tracking with me? Then verse 9 says, The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. So now you've got Ephraim, which is another name for Israel. The capital of, of Ephraim is Samaria. And the king of Samaria is Pekah, the, the son of Ramalia. So again, you're going from nation to capital city to king. You've got Ephraim, which is Israel. <laughs> I know this can be so confusing. You've got the capital city of Israel, which is Samaria. And then interestingly, he doesn't actually call um, the king by name, but he calls him the son of Ramalia. But we, we've seen that already back up here. Uh, that is uh, uh, Pekah, the son of Ramalia. So in both 
eight and nine here, you go from nation to capital to king. You tracking with me that far? Aram, Damascus, King Rezin, Ephraim, Samaria, King Pekah. But he's referred to as the son of Ramalia. Okay. I'm going to assume that you are with me so far. So going back to the map here. The other nation at play is Judah, right? And the capital city of Judah is Jerusalem. Who's the king of Jerusalem? Ahaz, the son of David. Jerusalem is God's city, right? This is where he set his throne in the midst of his people. And he put his servant David on that throne. David, who becomes uh, the, the type of the Messiah, the type of the king. He, king David is the great king. All of this. this is, what God is saying here is, I'm telling you, Ahaz, you don't need to be afraid of these smoldering wicks because I am behind the throne of Jerusalem. Remember who you are, Ahaz. Remember on whose throne you sit. The throne of David in Jerusalem over my people. I am the back. I am the power. I am the strength of Jerusalem and your throne, Ahaz. If you will believe, if you'll remain calm and do nothing, verse 4, take care and be calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted. If you will rest in me like your father David did, you have nothing to fear. But if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. This is decision time for Ahaz and for the entire house of David. This story is much bigger than just Ahaz. Ahaz represents the final king in the line of David who has the chance to do the right thing. Remember in the north, in Israel, it's a long time since there's been a good king. And in 722, they're going to be wiped out and, and, and carried off into exile by Assyria. Judah lasts another 100 plus years. And there are some good kings along the way. Jotham was a good king in many ways. Hezekiah is good by large. Uzziah was good. But Ahaz has the opportunity here to do the right thing and run off the enemies of Jerusalem and trust the Lord. And God is saying, you, Ahaz, make the right decision. Trust me. If you trust me, you have nothing to fear. And tomorrow, we're going to see God's His, his offering, his, his um, offer of success laid out to Ahaz in a massive, humongous way. 
and we'll have to see tomorrow what Ahaz does with it. What do we do in our day when there is fear-mongering all around us? It seems hopeless. It seems like we're spiraling out of control. Everything is going to collapse, they tell us. We've got famine coming. Inflation's out of control. The stock market's crashing. We've got wars and growing, and it's all chaos and a mess. What do we do? We turn off the news, and we trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Lon says, so our trust in Jesus should cast out fear of things happening today why should we fear the news? Well, you don't need to be afraid of the news, but everybody seems to... Well, you, your second statement's ambiguous. Is that a rhetorical question or is that a real question? Uh, yes, we should cast out our fear of things happening today. That doesn't mean it's all going to turn out rosy. You know, it doesn't God never promises us that in the midst of wicked and evil that we're not going to be collateral damage. But we don't fear. We must not fear. We trust the Lord. He will take care of us. I'm not, again, I'm not sure if your second part of that is, uh, why should we fear the news? If that's rhetorical, then I agree with you. Don't be afraid of it. If it's a sincere question, um, we are, we are so tempted to fear. My warning against the news is we are so tempted to fear. Now, you may be an exception to that, but so many Christians are are given to fear by what the news stirs up that I think sometimes we are better off just turning it off. Now I don't. I'm not advocating sticking our head in the sand. Uh, you've heard me say this before. Voting, voting. We in America we have votes that count, and we need to vote, and we need to vote for the right people. And that's not always people on the right. It's never people on the left. They've uh, uh, they've taken on a platform now that we just can't support. But just because they're on the right does not mean they're good people that really get it. We have to vote. So don't stick your head in the sand. But don't walk in fear. Trust the Lord. Good thoughts, Lon. All right, folks. Have a great day. Lord willing, we'll come back tomorrow and we will see what offer God puts on the table for Ahaz and how he responds. Take care.